Section 22 of the Columbia Accident Investigation Board Final Report, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Columbia Accident Investigation Board Final Report, Volume 1, by the Columbia Accident Investigation Board. Chapter 6b Decision-Making at NASA, Part 2 Other Foam Debris Events To better understand how NASA's treatment of debris strikes evolved over time, the Board investigated missions where debris was shed from locations other than the external tank bipod ramp. The number of debris strikes to the orbiter's lower surface thermal protection system that resulted in tile damage greater than one inch in diameter is shown in figure 6.1-6. The number of debris strikes may be small, but a single strike could damage several tiles. See figure 6.1-7. One debris strike, in particular, foreshadows the STS-107 event. When Atlantis was launched on STS-27R on December 2, 1988, the largest debris event up to that time significantly damaged the orbiter. Post-launch analysis of tracking camera imagery by the Intercenter Photo Working Group identified a large piece of debris that struck the thermal protection system tile at approximately 85 seconds into the flight. On flight day two, Mission Control asked the flight crew to inspect Atlantis with a camera mounted on the remote manipulator arm, a robotic device that was not installed on Columbia for STS-107. Mission Commander R. L. Hoot Gibson later stated that Atlantis looked like it had been blasted by a shotgun. Concerned that the orbiter's thermal protection system had been breached, Gibson ordered that the video be transferred to mission control so that NASA engineers could evaluate the damage. When Atlantis landed, engineers were surprised by the extent of the damage. Post-mission inspections deemed it the most severe of any mission yet flown. The orbiter had 707 dings, 298 of which were greater than an inch in one dimension. Damage was concentrated outboard of a line right of the bipod attachment to the liquid oxygen umbilical line. Even more worrisome, the debris had knocked off a tile, exposing the orbiter's skin to the heat of re-entry. Post-flight analysis concluded that structural damage was confined to the exposed cavity left by the missing tile, which happened to be at the location of a thick aluminum plate covering an L-band navigation antenna. Were it not for the thick aluminum plate, Gibson stated during a presentation to the board that a burn-through may have occurred. The board notes the distinctly different ways in which the STS-27R and STS-107 debris strike events were treated. After the discovery of the debris strike on flight day two of STS-27R, the crew was immediately directed to inspect the vehicle. More severe thermal damage, perhaps even a burn-through, may have occurred, were it not for the aluminum plate at the site of the tile loss. Fourteen years later, 
when a debris strike was discovered on flight day two of STS-107, shuttle program management declined to have the crew inspect the orbiter for damage, declined to request on-orbit imaging, and ultimately discounted the possibility of a burn-through. In retrospect, the debris strike on STS-27R is a strong signal of the threat debris posed that should have been considered by shuttle management when STS-107 suffered a similar debris strike. The board views the failure to do so as an illustration of the lack of institutional memory in the space shuttle program that supports the board's claim, discussed in Chapter 7, that NASA is not functioning as a learning organization. After the STS-27R damage was evaluated during a post-flight inspection, the Program Requirements Control Board assigned in-flight anomalies to the orbiter and solid rocket booster projects. Marshall Sprayable Ablator, MSA-1, material found embedded in an insulation blanket on the right orbital maneuvering system pod, confirmed that the ablator on the right solid rocket booster nose cap was the most likely source of the debris. Because an improved ablator material, MSA-2, would now be used on the solid rocket booster nose cap, the issue was considered closed by the time of the next mission's flight readiness review. The Orbiter Thermal Protection System review team concurred with the use of the improved ablator without reservation. An STS-27R investigation team notation mirrors a Columbia Accident Investigation Board finding. The STS-27R investigation noted, It is observed that program emphasis and attention to tile damage assessments varies with severity and that detailed records could be augmented to ease trend maintenance. Emphasis added. In other words, Space Shuttle Program personnel knew that the monitoring of tile damage was inadequate and that clear trends could be more readily identified if monitoring was improved, but no such improvements were made. The Board also noted that an STS-27R investigation team recommendation correlated to the Columbia accident 14 years later. It is recommended that the program actively solicit design improvements directed toward eliminating debris sources or minimizing damage potential. Another instance of non-bipod foam damage occurred on STS-35. Post-flight inspections of Columbia after STS-35 in December 1990 showed a higher-than-average amount of damage on the orbiter's lower surface. A review of external tank separation film revealed approximately ten areas of missing foam on the flange connecting the liquid hydrogen tank to the intertank. An in-flight anomaly was assigned to the external tank project, which closed it by stating that there was no increase in orbiter thermal protection system damage and that it was not a safety-of-flight concern. The board notes that it was in a discussion of the STS-36 flight readiness review that NASA first identified this problem as a turnaround issue. Per established procedures, NASA was still designating foam loss events as in-flight anomalies and continued to make various corrective actions 
such as drilling more vent holes and improving the foam application process. Discovery was launched on STS-42 on January 22, 1992. A total of 159 hits on the orbiter thermal protection system were noted after landing. Two 8- to 12-inch diameter divots in the external tank intertank area were noted during post-external tank separation photo-evaluation, and these pieces of foam were identified as the most probable sources of the damage. The external tank project was assigned an in-flight anomaly, and the incident was later described as an unexplained or isolated event. However, at later flight readiness reviews, the Marshall Space Flight Center briefed this as being not a safety-of-flight concern. The next flight, STS-45, would be the first mission launched before the foam loss in-flight anomaly was closed. On March 24, 1992, Atlantis was launched on STS-45. Post-mission inspection revealed exposed substrata on the upper surface of right-wing leading-edge reinforced carbon-carbon, RCC, panel 10, caused by two gouges, one 1 1.9 inches by 1.6 inches, and the other 0.4 inches by 1 inch. Before the next flight, an in-flight anomaly assigned to the orbiter project was closed as unexplained but most likely orbital debris. Despite this closure, the Safety and Mission Assurance Office expressed concern as late as the pre-launch mission management team meeting two days before the launch of STS-49. Nevertheless, the mission was cleared for launch. Later laboratory tests identified pieces of man-made debris lodged in the RCC, including stainless steel, aluminum, and titanium, but no conclusion was made about the source of the debris. The board notes that this indicates there were transport mechanisms available to determine the path the debris took to impact the wing leading edge. See section 3.4. The Program Requirements Control Board also assigned the external tank project an in-flight anomaly after foam loss on STS-56, Discovery, and STS-58, Columbia, both of which were launched in 1993. These missions demonstrate the increasingly casual ways in which debris impacts were dispositioned by shuttle program managers, after post-flight analysis determined that on both missions the foam had come from the intertank and bipod jackpad areas, the rationale for closing the in-flight anomalies included notations that external tank foam debris was in-family or within the experience base. During the launch of STS-87 Columbia on November 19, 1997, a debris event focused NASA's attention on debris shedding and damage to the orbiter. Post-external tank separation photography revealed a significant loss of material from both thrust panels, which are fastened to the solid rocket booster forward attachment points on the intertank structure. Post-landing inspection of the orbiter noted 308 hits, with 244 on the lower surface, and 109 larger than an inch. 
The foam loss from the external tank thrust panels was suspected as the most probable cause of the orbiter thermal protection system damage. Based on data from post-flight inspection reports, as well as comparisons with statistics from 71 similarly configured flights, the total number of damage sites, and the number of damage sites one inch or larger, were considered out of family. An investigation was conducted to determine the cause of the material loss and the actions required to prevent a recurrence. The foam loss problem on STS-87 was described as popcorning because of the numerous popcorn-sized foam particles that came off the thrust panels. Popcorning has always occurred, but it began earlier than usual in the launch of STS-87. The cause of the earlier-than-normal popcorning, but not the fundamental cause of popcorning, was traced to a change in foam-blowing agents that caused pressure build-ups and stress concentrations within the foam. In an effort to reduce its use of chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, NASA had switched from a CFC-11 chlorofluorocarbon blowing agent to an HCFC-141B blowing agent, beginning with external tank 85, which was assigned to STS-84. The change in blowing agent affected only mechanically applied foam. Foam that is hand-sprayed, such as on the bipod ramp, is still applied using CFC-11. The Program Requirements Control Board issued a directive and the external tank project was assigned an in-flight anomaly to address the intertank thrust panel foam loss. Over the course of nine missions, the external tank project first reduced the thickness of the foam on the thrust panels to minimize the amount of foam that could be shed. And due to a misunderstanding of what caused foam loss at that time, put vent holes in the thrust panel foam to relieve trapped gas pressure. The in-flight anomaly remained open during these changes, and foam shedding occurred on the nine missions that tested the corrective actions. Following STS-101, the tenth mission after STS-87, the Program Requirements Control Board concluded that foam shedding from the thrust panel had been reduced to an acceptable level by sanding and venting, and the in-flight anomaly was closed. The Orbiter Project, External Tank Project, and Space Shuttle Program Management all accepted this rationale without question. The Board notes that these interventions merely reduced foam shedding to previously experienced levels, which have remained relatively constant over the shuttle's lifetime. Making the Orbiter More Resistant to Debris Strikes If foam shedding could not be prevented entirely, what did NASA do to make the thermal protection system more resistant to debris strikes? A 1990 study by Dr. Elizabeth Pate Cornell and Paul Fishback attempted to quantify the risk of a thermal protection system failure using probabilistic analysis. The data they used included 1. the probability that a tile would become debonded by either debris strikes or a poor bond. 2. The probability of then losing adjacent tiles. 3. Depending on the final size of the failed area, the probability of a burn-through. And 4. The probability of failure of a critical subsystem if burn-through occurs. 
The study concluded that the probability of losing an orbiter on any given mission due to a failure of thermal protection system tiles was approximately 1 in 1,000. Debris-related problems accounted for approximately 40% of the probability, while 60% was attributable to tile debonding caused by other factors. An estimated 85% of the risk could be attributed to 15% of the acreage, or larger areas of tile, meaning that the loss of any one of a relatively small number of tiles posed a relatively large amount of risk to the orbiter. In other words, not all tiles are equal. Losing certain tiles is more dangerous. While the actual risk may be different than that computed in the 1990 study, due to the limited amount of data and the underlying simplified assumptions, this type of analysis offers insight that enables management to concentrate their resources on protecting the orbiter's critical areas. Two years after the conclusion of that study, NASA wrote to Pate Cornell and Fishback, describing the importance of their work, and stated that it was developing a long-term effort to use probabilistic risk assessment and related disciplines to improve programmatic decisions. Though NASA has taken some measures to invest in probabilistic risk assessment as a tool, it is the board's view that NASA has not fully exploited the insights that Pate Cornell's and Fishback's work offered. Impact-resistant tile NASA also evaluated the possibility of increasing thermal protection system tile resistance to debris hits, lowering the possibility of tile debonding, and reducing tile production and maintenance costs. Indeed, tiles with a tough coating are currently used on the orbiters. This coating, known as Toughened Unipiece Fibrous Insulation, or TUFI, was patented in 1992 and developed for use on high-temperature rigid insulation. TUFI is used on a tile material known as Illumina Enhanced Thermal Barrier, AETB, and has a debris impact resistance that is greater than the current acreage tiles resistance by a factor of approximately 6 to 20. At least 772 of these advanced tiles have been installed on the orbiter's base heat shields and upper body flaps. However, due to its higher thermal conductivity, TUFI-coated AETB cannot be used as a replacement for the larger areas of tile coverage. Boeing, Lockheed Martin, and NASA are developing a lightweight, impact-resistant, low-conductivity tile. Because the impact requirements for these next-generation tiles do not appear to be based on resistance to specific and probable damage sources, it is the Board's view that certification of the new tile will not adequately address the threat posed by debris. Conclusion Despite original design requirements that the external tank not shed debris, and the corresponding design requirement that the orbiter not receive debris hits exceeding a trivial amount of force, debris has impacted the shuttle on each flight. Over the course of 113 missions, foam shedding and other debris impacts came to be regarded more as a turnaround or maintenance issue, and less as a hazard to the vehicle and crew. Assessments of foam shedding and strikes were not thoroughly substantiated by engineering analysis, 
and the process for closing in-flight anomalies is not well documented and appears to vary. Shuttle program managers appear to have confused the notion of foam posing an accepted risk with foam not being a safety-of-flight issue. At times, the pressure to meet flight schedule appeared to cut short engineering efforts to resolve the foam-shedding problem. NASA's lack of understanding of foam properties and behavior must also be questioned. Although tests were conducted to develop and qualify foam for use on the external tank, it appears there were large gaps in NASA's knowledge about this complex and variable material. Recent testing conducted at Marshall Space Flight Center and under the auspices of the board indicate that mechanisms previously considered a prime source of foam loss, cryopumping and cryoingestion, are not feasible in the conditions experienced during tanking, launch, and ascent. Also, dissections of foam bipod ramps on external tanks yet to be launched reveal subsurface flaws and defects that only now are being discovered and identified as contributing to the loss of foam from the bipod ramps. While NASA properly designated key debris events as in-flight anomalies in the past, more recent events indicate that NASA engineers and management did not appreciate the scope, or lack of scope, of the hazard reports involving foam shedding. Ultimately, NASA's hazard analyses, which were based on reducing or eliminating foam shedding, were not succeeding. Shuttle program management made no adjustments to the analyses to recognize this fact. The acceptance of events that are not supposed to happen has been described by sociologist Diane Vaughan as the normalization of deviance. The history of foam problem decisions shows how NASA first began and then continued flying with foam losses, so that flying with these deviations from design specifications was viewed as normal and acceptable. Dr. Richard Feynman, a member of the Presidential Commission on the Space Shuttle Challenger Accident, discusses this phenomenon in the context of the Challenger Accident. The parallels are striking. The phenomenon of accepting flight seals that had shown erosion and blow-by in previous flights is very clear. The Challenger flight is an excellent example. There are several references to flights that had gone before. The acceptance and success of these flights is taken as evidence of safety. But erosions and blow-by are not what the design expected. They are warnings that something is wrong. The O-rings of the solid rocket booster were not designed to erode. Erosion was a clue that something was wrong. Erosion was not something from which safety can be inferred. If a reasonable launch schedule is to be maintained, engineering often cannot be done fast enough to keep up with the expectations of originally conservative certification criteria designed to guarantee a very safe vehicle. In these situations, subtly and often with apparently logical arguments, the criteria are altered, so that flights may still be certified in time. They therefore fly in a relatively unsafe condition, with a chance of failure on the order of a percent. It is difficult to be more accurate. Findings F6.1-1 NASA has not followed its own rules and requirements on foam shedding. 
although the agency continuously worked on the foam-shedding problem, the debris impact requirements have not been met on any mission. F6.1-2 Foam-shedding, which had initially raised serious safety concerns, evolved into an in-family or no-safety-of-flight event and were deemed an accepted risk. F6.1-3 Five of the seven bipod ramp events occurred on missions flown by Columbia, a seemingly high number. This observation is likely due to Columbia having been equipped with umbilical cameras earlier than the other orbiters. F6.1-4 There is lack of effective processes for feedback or integration among project elements in the resolution of in-flight anomalies. F6.1-5 Foam bipod debris shedding incidents on STS-52 and STS-62 were undetected at the time they occurred and were not discovered until the board directed NASA to examine external tank separation images more closely. F6.1-6 Foam bipod debris shedding events were classified as in-flight anomalies up until STS-112, which was the first known bipod foam-shedding event not classified as an in-flight anomaly. F6.1-7 The STS-112 assignment for the external tank project to identify the cause and corrective action of the bipod ramp foam loss event was not due until after the planned launch of STS-113, and then slipped to after the launch of STS-107. F6.1-8 No external tank configuration changes were made after the bipod foam loss on STS-112. F6.1-9 Although it is sometimes possible to obtain imagery of night launches because of light provided by the solid rocket motor plume, no imagery was obtained for STS-113. F6.1-10 NASA failed to adequately perform trend analysis on foam losses. This greatly hampered the agency's ability to make informed decisions about foam losses. F6.1-11 Despite the constant shedding of foam, the shuttle program did little to harden the orbiter against foam impacts through upgrades to the thermal protection system. Without impact resistance and strength requirements that are calibrated to the energy of the debris likely to impact the orbiter, certification of new thermal protection system tile will not adequately address the threat posed by debris. Recommendations None End of section 22. Recording by Maria Casper.